This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we set out what's coming up in the week ahead and what you need to know about it. I'm Justin Quirk, and joining me this morning in the virtual studio is Best for Britain CEO, Naomi Smith. Good morning, Naomi. How are you? Oh, good morning, Justin, and welcome to another week in paradise. Uh, another week, and the, hit, and the hits just keep on coming. <laughs> Yesterday, Sunday Times reported that plans are afoot to act lateral flow tests, except in high-risk settings, and scale back contact tracing by NHS Test and Trace is now, i.e. deep midwinter with case numbers still surging in many areas, really the best time to be doing this? Well, not so much deep winter, although there is, of course, strong correlation, uh, but testing just shouldn't be scaled back at any time where we have high case numbers. And of course, at the moment, we have record high case numbers, which is, of course, because Omicron is much more transmissible, but also because it's winter, we're indoors, we're, we're more likely to, to give it to each other. Um, testing, of course, is incredibly important because it allows the government and health agencies to monitor both the size of the pandemic, but also to predict pressure on health services, and really importantly, to spot any new mutations in the virus and respond accordingly ahead of time. Now, not only have we heard reports that there are plans at some point to axe lateral flow tests, but of course, last week we saw um, a rollback on the PCR uh, requirements for those that, that are asymptomatic. And reducing testing when cases are so high or even signalling that you're going to be doing it is is reckless. Um, and it leaves us at increased risk of overwhelming the health service and really importantly, missing any new variant. Remember, we only know about new variants because of the, the screening that happens when tests are sent into laboratories. And there's absolutely no shortage of demand at the moment. You know, look anywhere on social media and people are giving each other tips about when LFT uh, orders can be placed, when more stock has come in, which chemists near you actually have some in that you can go and buy if you haven't been able to buy them uh, on the government website. And so the regime of home testing seems to be practically one of the only parts of this campaign that most people have got on board with and that has been genuinely useful with, of course, the, the exception of vaccines. And so while six billion that's been spent on it might sound like a lot by context of having spent what nearly 30 billion on test and trace, it, it really just sort of feels like, why would you do that now? Why would you scale back now? It's obviously very good value for money and helps keep us safe. Sure. Um, and Nadim Zahawi has become the first cabinet minister to back moves to reduce the self-isolation period from seven days to five. The general mood music from the government seems to be we are declaring COVID over regardless of how the virus is actually behaving. Is this another example of ideology trumping the facts on the ground? Are our old friends in the ERG slash CRG the tail wagging the dog once more? I think, you know, when we're looking at 
why they would even contemplate doing this now. Why is the Harvey out there talking about a reduction in the self-isolation period? My best guess is that they're trying to bounce the country into living with the crisis um, and getting the prime minister out of a political stalemate with his party. Now, the, the prime minister's problem is that he can't pass any new covid related legislation without the support of Keir Starmer. We saw that in the votes before Christmas. So his political future has been hanging in the balance since those Plan B votes in Parliament relied on on Labour's support. And his biggest problem continues to be that impasse over COVID regulations. If he declares that the emergency is over, then his main problem with his party and backbenchers goes away. And this is probably why we're seeing a push to move the country on to living with COVID, despite all the risks uh, of doing so when you are at more than 100,000 cases a day. So what I'm saying is that it just feels like Johnson can't lead at the moment. So cabinet ministers are feeling much bolder. Um, and I think we can expect more of them speaking their mind like Zahawi has and and uh, and coming up with a few kind of unilateral pronouncements on things because there, there are going to be few repercussions from them. He has lost his power over the cabinet. Related to that, I saw in today's Independent, there's an interview with Mark Harper, who was explicitly saying that if all COVID restrictions are not abolished, Johnson will face a leadership challenge, which I think was the most uh, unvarnished statement of that I'd seen. So uh, good good to know that uh, we're following the science still on this yep. one. So, um, staying with COVID, away from the UK, stories are emerging from Xi'an in China as the city has put under an incredibly strict lockdown to suppress COVID cases. 13 million people have effectively been under full lockdown since just before Christmas and awful stories are coming out of people being turned away from hospitals after suffering miscarriages and heart attacks, women trapped in quarantine hostels without sanitary products, people left without food. Is China's continued zero COVID strategy sustainable at this point or even desirable given the social costs of it that we seem to be seeing? Such a good question, Justin. I mean, the, the reports coming out of Xi'an sound really horrible. You know, people bartering with each other for food because they're hungry, you know, swapping computer games for noodles and that kind of thing. You know, absolutely, um, you know, shocking, shocking reports. I think it's it's worth remembering that very few countries ever tried to adopt a zero COVID strategy. Uh, you had Singapore, New Zealand, Australia, a few others that had joined China in that approach. But unlike China, uh, most of them have switched away from it and begun to open up as it becomes more clear that we are going to have to learn to, ling- learn to live with long COVID uh, in the long term. I think a, a realisation that Omicron kind of makes um, zero COVID as a strategy almost impossible because of how transmissible it is. But um, I think China will probably try to stick with it for a few reasons. First, it is a very densely populated country and it has relatively low levels of you know, what, what's d- dubbed herd immunity precisely because it has followed a zero COVID strategy. So relatively few people have um, had COVID in China. And reports, of course, are that its vaccines are slightly less effective than the, the vaccines that, that have been deployed amongst um, much of the rest of the rich world. And secondly, you, you sort of mentioned social costs there, you know, given the social cost of these sort of continued lockdowns, is it is it a sustainable strategy? Well, the, the Chinese Communist Party will be really fearing the social unrest that would come from a mass outbreak more than the unrest that, that may 
come forward from these kind of continued very strict lockdowns and, and very strict border controls. And that's because in China, there are generally very, very high levels of support for lockdowns. Um, this is a country, of course, that has had to deal with various different SARS outbreaks and bird flu outbreaks over the last few decades. And then thirdly, you've got to remember that the eyes of the world will be on China this year, next month for the Beijing Winter Olympics, but in the autumn for the 20th Party Congress uh, of the CCP. And that is attended by thousands of delegates. And it's where Xi Jinping will be hoping to get another five-year term locked in. And he certainly is not going to want either of those events to be the cause of a major outbreak. So look, long run, we know that a zero COVID strategy is highly unlikely uh, to be able to run in any country. Of course, if anyone can pull it off, it's it's China. But um, I, I think the chances of them rowing back on it now are pretty slim. You mentioned there the uh, the upcoming Winter Olympics. There's a diplomatic boycott of those games due from the UK, Australia and the US, along with smaller countries like Lithuania, Belgium and also Japan. Uh, however, the athletes themselves will still be in attendance. So is that gesture going to carry much weight? I don't think so. Um, to be honest, I didn't even realise that these things were attended by many diplos. Um, so I think if the athletes are all still participating, I doubt the boycott is going to lead to a rise in awareness uh, beyond that that already exists of China's human rights abuses. I think what is interesting and worth mentioning is the state of the Chinese economy, because of course, we know here in the UK, it's the libertarian right that are always going on about, no, 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 you can't threaten the economy by protecting people's health. You've got, got, to, get, got to keep the economy open. And, and those of us that follow the science saying, mm, but if you want to protect the economy long term, you really do need to make mm. sure cases stay much lower. But in China, threats to the economy really are multiplying quite quite seriously. And it's zero COVID strategy means that outbreaks are being met with these very strict containment measures, and that's disrupting manufacturing, shipping, consumption. There was one story of something like 6,000 Vietnamese trucks being stuck at the border um, at the end of last year because of, you know, closing the borders because of an outbreak of a handful of cases in China. It's also got, you know, therefore surging costs, um, and that's going to have a big impact on its foreign trade. It's got a wall of maturing debt and a surge in seasonal demand for cash in January because of the, as you said, the, the, the Lunar New Year festivities. And all of that puts pressure on its financial system. So I think if anything is going to have an impact on the CCP, it's probably more likely to be a, you know, being very, very concerned about where its economy might be headed um, into the next couple of years. And back home, news has come out of yet another party that Boris Johnson apparently attended during lockdown. This event was from May 2020, five days after the other not a cheese and wine garden party <laughs> was photographed by a mysterious PI from number 11 Downing Street. Uh, this story isn't going away, is it? Um, how damaging is this constant drip feed of society revelations to Johnson? Yeah, so the Sunday Times reported yesterday that uh, the the Johnsons, both both Boris and Carrie, attended. A, I think it was called a BYOB, a Bring Your Own Bottle or Bring Your Own Booze party that was thrown by Martin Reynolds, who is was he may have been sacked by now by the time this goes out. Uh, the Prime Minister's PPS um, reports this morning are that he is going to lose his job over this, and three sources verified the story. And the the kind of gotcha is that it it being branded a bring your own booze type event 
um, infers that it was definitely a planned party rather than any impromptu post-work drink or outdoor meeting, you know, as, as some of the other ones have been uh, referred to in the garden. And this story isn't going away um, because more and more people are going to be coming forward to tell tales and the media are hungry for it. But whether it can cut through more than the Christmas party one, I doubt. And I think that's because the Christmas party one, the one that Allegra Stratton has lost her job over, we can all remember very viscerally where we were when they were doing that. And, you know, everyone remembers Christmas 2020, Mm -hmm. not being able to see loved ones, not being able to see family. Many of us had situations where we had loved ones in hospital, we couldn't visit or care homes we couldn't visit at that time. So I don't think any of the summer ones have kind of got that sort of very, very, very reminiscent um, hook that that sort of enables you to compare the suffering you were going through while they were laughing and smiling. I also think that him being a liar and rule breaker is now completely baked in with voters. And so what the Tory backbenchers are now saying is that while voters will probably eventually forget about these parties, what they're not going to forget about is the cost of living crisis and Johnson's critics in his own party and the right-wing press this morning are going very, very hard on him and on Sunak over tax rises, over the energy cost increases, etc. And the, the, the story of getting Johnson seems to be moving on from one rule for them, different rules for us or no rules for them and lots of rules for us to they ain't levelling us up. They're levelling the whole country down. The economy story, I mean, this seems to be the more slow burning story that's kind of amassing around Johnson here. We've got the, so you say, today's mails headlined, save us from the cost of living crisis, Boris. Similar headlines in the Express and the Mirror. There's also campaigners later today will be saying that Michael goes four billion to replace Grenfell style clabbing, doesn't do enough to cover homeowners' expenses. Uh, while Ed Miliband will be challenging the government this week on its opposition to a windfall tax on energy companies. It feels like a kind of perfect storm of these events. Is this are we finally seeing the sort of full economic cost of Brexit and COVID really starting to bite on the government here? And is it actually sticking to him in a way that little else seems to? That's a very good question. And I haven't got my fingers on recent polling on it. I would like to. Um, so if anyone wants to donate to Best of Britain so I can poll how that's going down with people, that would be great. We, I mean, look, we have seen that more and more reporters are shining a spotlight on how well the EU countries have recovered to pre-COVID levels of trade when the UK really, really hasn't and flows from uh, trade flows, that is, um, in the, the third quarter of 2021. Those figures are now out now and they were the lowest value relative to GDP seen since 2009. So, you know, just as we were feeling the pinch of the financial crisis. So I don't think we're there yet. Uh, in terms of people joining the dots and connecting the dots, but it is certainly the beginning of it for them, without doubt. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
This Thursday, Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has her first face-to-face talks with her EU counterpart, Maros Sefcovic, at Chevening. Writing in the Sunday Telegraph, she threatened again to trigger Article 16. Sefcovic was unimpressed, telling De Spiegel, you try to achieve something serious together and bam, there's the threat of Article 16 again. <laughs> is Truss actually serious about triggering this or is this just rabble-rousing <laughs> for the Telegraph's readership, Naomi? Oh, Justin, she's so desperate. She's like... <laughs> It's oozing out of her. She wants to be Tory party leader so badly. She's like making herself too available. Like if she was your mate at school trying to pull a lad, you tell her, look, play a bit harder to get love. Like, you know, don't show them quite so much ankle. Like, you know, like be cool, be cool. Yeah. And I, so I think this sort of latest show of bombast over Article 16 probably is just her, you know, really seriously flirting with that party faithful. Will she trigger it? I doubt it. The government does not want a trade war with the EU. It really, really, really doesn't. And it is worth repeating that Article 16 is not the silver bullet that they're pretending it is. And it does create far more problems than it's going to solve for them. Um, For listeners who've perhaps understandably tuned out of all this about 18 months ago in terms of Article 16, what would the immediate consequences of triggering that be for Northern Ireland? Well, so ultimately... It could be a trade war. So the EU could impose tariffs on UK goods. But initially, that wouldn't happen because that that would be only made possible after a lengthy arbitration process. So the arbitrators would, would first have to find that the UK is in breach of the protocol. Then the UK would have to refuse to remedy that breach. And at that point, the EU could retaliate under the terms of the wider Brexit deal, that that so-called TCA, the, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. And it could require another arbitration process to rule whether the use of tar- tariffs is proportionate retaliation. There is potentially a faster legal track that's known as infringement proceedings, which could lead to the UK being fined. But, you know, overall, it's it's bad news for, for an already beleaguered UK economy, because it will make everything more expensive. There will be less range on the shelves in supermarkets, there'll be reduced choice. And of course, it makes us look like absolutely dreadful trade partners with other countries around the world with whom presumably we would quite like to be signing deals. I mean, the general tone coming from not just Sefcovic, but other various EU representatives is one of just absolute exasperation with the British at this point. Is there a risk with these talks that while nobody wants a huge breakdown over something like Article 16, a combination of a beleaguered government playing to their base and just a general loss of patience by the EU results in a worst case scenario happening by default? I mean, look, it's possible, but I don't think it'll happen because, I mean, you you use, you know, the words exasperated, and I think that's you know, accurate. But think of it like the exasperated, exhausted parents of a toddler. <laughs> you know, you're tearing your hair out and you're like through gritted teeth going, oh my God, I could fucking <laughs> kill you. But they know they're the adult in the room and that they're the ones that have to maintain some semblance of decorum to try and negotiate with this child who's refusing to put their clothes on or go to bed or do a wee before we get in the car um and so you know, <laughs> the eu are thankfully i think the adults in the room that we can rely on to to you know pull us back from a worst case scenario 
That's that's a relative silver lining to that story. <laughs> Last week's verdict in the trial of the Colston Four is still rumbling on. Attorney General Suella Braverman is threatening to refer the acquittal back to the Court of Appeal, despite offering no clear grounds for doing so or any questions about the judge's conduct in the previous trial. Is this culture war as usual, or are we seeing something more insidious at work here with the government's relation to the judiciary? I mean, the way I see this is that they'll just do anything for a good headline in the Sun newspaper. Remember, this government is fucking about with the judiciary, the rule of law, accountability, due process, uh, through all of these egregious bills we've got going through Parliament at the moment, Nationality and Borders Bill, Elections Bill, uh, Police Crime and Sentencing Bill, Judicial Review, etc. So I just see this latest stuff coming from Braverman as all part of that piece and they'll do anything to dodge accountability um, and to stoke up their base. Um, anything for a good headline in the sun, frankly, is my, my view on this. We should say that even if Bradman does refer the case back, the verdicts can't be overturned yeah. by the process. What's what's the wider effect, though, of this kind of interference likely to be, do you think? Um, so, I mean, I think on the whole, the Bradman thing must be remembered as the fact that juries cannot set legal precedents. Um, and the Crown Prosecution Service are not allowed to take this case into account when assessing whether in a different case, there is sufficient evidence to charge. Um, and as others have pointed out, what, what may well encourage copycat behaviour is politicians misrepresenting the law and falsely claiming that a pres- precedent has been set rather than people being like, oh, well, the Colson Four got away with you know tearing down the statue, maybe I'll do it too. People like the Secret Barrister on Twitter have been absolutely amazing at uh, blogging on this and setting out the detail of, you know, why this has happened, what it really means, whether or not that means that, you know, our constitution has actually come out of this shining or whether it's been found lacking. Um, And I've yet to sort of find a really decent legal mind on this, back the government and Braverman on it. They're, you know, they're all, they're all out there just saying, no, 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 this was, this was an example of our judicial system doing what it should do. In one of those strange, the world turned upside down moments, I did find myself agreeing with Jacob Rees-Mogg. On when, when, when him of all people came out and defended uh, jury verdicts as the sublime protector of our liberties. So, Even um, in their broken clock tells the right time twice today. Huh? <laughs> cometh the hour, cometh the man. So um, finally, just as we're recording, a judge in Australia has ruled in Novak Djokovic's favour after the government withdrew its case, although the government lawyer has said their immigration minister may consider still cancelling Djokovic's visa again under special powers. Uh, an unlikely champion of East European economic migrants has appeared <laughs> in the form of Nigel Farage, who- <laughs> For uh, appears to be in Belgrade with the Djokovic family and a cardboard cutout of Novak Djokovic under his arm. Um, why is he there, Naomi? <laughs> so, Justin, who had uh, tennis meets obnoxious populism on their bingo card for 2022? Because I did not. Well, funnily enough, Naomi, I did. So, uh, jokes on you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are the soothsayer we need. Um, I mean, look, why is he there? Because he's an attention-seeking, you know, twat who will flip from one thing to the next. And I thought Andy Murray's tweet was absolutely superb about, you know, let's record that awkward moment when he turns up to meet the Djokovic family, having spent most of his career trying to uh, remove the rights of Eastern Europeans. 
He is there, I presume, because this is a front that he's seeing open up in the culture war that he wants to be king of, um, because here is a good, strong man, Balkan figure that, you know, represents all of the macho, you know, misogynistic crap that I, you know, stand up for and believe in. Um, so he's sort of wedged himself in there. But I mean, frankly, it's just it's just ridiculous, completely ridiculous. Although as someone who's done a lot of work around borders and the treatments of migrants, you must be pleasantly surprised to welcome this unlikely recruit to your ranks. I mean, there's unholy alliances and then there's, I'd rather, you know, cut out my own tongue than have to (laughs) welcome him into my ranks. Well, personally, uh, I'm morbidly curious. After two years of lockdowns for the Australian public, I'm interested to see what sort of reception uh, they give the tennis ace on court if he does. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, do you think that he's likely to sort of underperform given that he's been in this quarantine hotel for a while? Um, I'm I'm just waiting to see the sort of bread rolls starting to rain down on him from the, uh, <laughs> from the stands. As the <clears throat> I think it'll be a uh, yeah that famous Australian hospitality will uh, will pick <laughs> at that point. So anyway, and that's your week covered off, or at least as much of it as we can predict at this early hour on a Monday morning. Thank you, Naomi, for getting up so early. Thank you for having me, Justin. We'll be back tomorrow with the Roundtable edition of The Bunker. Don't forget to follow us on your favourite podcast app so you don't miss out. And you can get every edition of The Bunker early when you support us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcasts to find out how. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.